on this episode of Right On Radio, how to build a flying saucer. No, really. This is teaching you how to build a flying saucer. Right On Radio. Right On Radio. And welcome back to Right On Radio. My name is Jeff. I'm your host, and I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. And just as we get into the information here, I do want to ask you to please like, subscribe, and share this broadcast. I have a really great Rolodex of guests I want to bring on, but until I have enough subscribers, I really don't want to ask them to come. So please, if you'll enjoy this, if you think the information is good, or even maybe just sort of good, Although this one is going to be really good because you're going to learn that actually you can build a flying saucer like the real ones. Well, that you think maybe you're real. You might have seen them on TV. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. This is the real deal. We're talking about flying saucers today. So one of the things that you're going to find out as we go through this is perhaps it isn't as cutting edge modern technology as we thought. Huh. The other thing I wanna do just to start this discussion is, you know, there's a big debate out there whether there's people on out of, in other worlds, the universe is big. I don't know the answer to that question. But when it comes to how we perceive aliens and what people have seen here on Earth. There's been some depictions. There's certainly been a lot of media. Close Encounters of the Third Kind that comes to mind. Uh, the movie E.T. There's lots of stuff that goes on. Star Trek portrays a lot of pictures. And you got to remember, if you listen to some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, a lot of the time, this is very controlled information. is disseminated out to you for a reason. So why do I say this? It's because there is actually a debate in many circles of whether there is extraterrestrial life here on Earth, or is it something else? There's a very big school of thought saying that perhaps they're the fallen angels that were cast down, and actually they're not from outer space, but from beneath the soil that we stand on. And they're very sophisticated creatures, that have great engineering and perhaps have interfaced with people on the earth. I don't know the answer to that. I have my inclinings and I will do a deep dive on this in the future because I am fascinated by this topic. But here's why this is really relevant today. And, you know, if you didn't think 2020 could get any weirder, well, it's about to. <laughs> so. First of all, what really sparked this in my mind is on July 24th of 2020, the U.S. government made a massive press release that made it into the mainstream media. Now, when it goes to the mainstream media, you know that there's some messaging behind it. So, at least myself, I'm always skeptical and I think that they're saying it in a certain way for a certain reason. But without getting too diverted, because I don't want this podcast to be extremely long, I'm just going to read you the headline. This is again July 24th of 2020. U.S. government admits they are in possession of, in quotations, off-world vehicles not made on Earth. That's pretty stunning. And last year, I believe they were, they actually announced that, you know, we've actually been studying UFOs in the Department of Defense for uh, a number of years. And now they've just decided on July 24th of this year to come out with that statement. But what happened prior to that statement? On Friday, December the 20th of 2019, President Donald Trump announced Space Force. How does this all tie together? Well, this is really, really going to get bizarre to a lot of people listening to this. So a couple things that many people are not aware of. First of all, Nikolai Tesla was one of the greatest inventors of our time. Nikolai Tesla had invented, apparently, and whether it could work on a grand scale or not, he discovered 
how to create electricity out of air and essentially transmit it wirelessly. Of course, he's also famous for inventing uh, AC power and a lot of turbines and things like that, even that are used at Niagara Falls and that those are Tesla inventions. So the guy was really prolific. Uh, he's also, you know, had come up with this death ray technology that, uh, that the U.S., when they launched their Star Wars program, I believe it was under Ronald Reagan, they were really trying to get this uh, death ray or particle beam to be working so they could, you know, put the fear into the Russians, or at least that was the talking points. But Nikolai Tesla died, uh, I believe somewhere around 1939, 1940. I just had it up in front of me, but I closed the screen down. I apologize for that, but it's easy to find. And most of his inventions and patents were buried. Now, why would they bury such great inventions? Well, the one on electricity is really easy to explain because the Rockefellers wanted to sell power via power lines and delivery systems and have people to pay for it. So usually money wins out big. But a lot of these inventions were taken, confiscated by the FBI and buried. But before they were buried, there was a person who was a top MIT scientist, and he was asked by the FBI to review all of these inventions and see if there was some stuff that the US government could take out of this and make useful for itself. Well, this is where the story gets really interesting. The person, the famous MIT scientist, his name, happened to be John Trump. Yes, the paternal uncle of the current president, Donald J. Trump. Now, he, the, John Trump actually invented x-rays and he did World War II research and stuff like that, but he was the one who was able to look at all of these documents before they're sealed. And then you get Donald J. Trump getting elected and announcing Space Force. And now we're talking about off-world vehicles not made on this earth. How does all this happen? Well, I'm going to get into the next segment and I'm just going to introduce the guest that is going to be coming on. And then you're going to learn how to build a flying saucer. And just as a caveat, there is some engineering information in this. Um, I'm a bit nerdy. I really enjoy it. But even if you don't understand all of the engineering that is coming out in this, uh, he makes some really good case examples that are easy to understand that just proves that this stuff is viable. And one last additional point on Nikolai Tesla. It was said that he invented something called the ion thruster. Now, the ion thruster is something that is used today. Uh, NASA uses it. You can look it up. And the latest Air Force planes, these planes that hit Mach 3 uh, currently, are using what they're calling ion thrusters. And what they do is they actually... It's the way they change the propulsion coming from the jet. And uh, anyways, it's super scientific and I'm not gonna explain the ion thrusters, but I just want you to know that some of this stuff is currently in use. Right on, right on, right on. Now I'd like to introduce the person you're about to hear from. His name is William Cooper. And I first became of William Cooper back in the late 80s. Uh, very, very strange story that I will share at another time. But in, just to keep this short, I'll just give you what his credentials were. So he started off in the military, he was in the Air Force, and then eventually went to the Navy, became an intelligence officer, went up the ranks to become what was called a level 17 security officer, which means nothing in, in any department or anything was not open to him. He had the highest level security clearance that you can achieve. They call it Q level intelligence. If you are not familiar with Q-level intelligence, it's something that is very big today because there is someone named Q giving out a lot of military intelligence that uh, will help you see the future. Anyways, so 
This guy, William Cooper, saw so much evidence and he decided to become a whistleblower and start, he, so he brought out a lot of intelligence and he brought proof of the things he was saying. And then he is just dedicated the rest of his life to, to getting this information out of there. Unfortunately, his life was ended uh, in the early 90s and he predicted his death uh, right before it happened uh, because of some of the truths he's putting out there. But I trust you will find this absolutely fascinating. So without further ado, here is William Cooper and how to build a flying saucer. Right on radio. Right on radio. Uh, okay, let's get right into this, because this is really interesting, and uh, I think uh, some of you should do it. Uh, now, a couple of years ago, a man called me, would not give me his name, told me that he would like to meet with me, that he had evidence with him and would bring it with him to show that the development of flying saucer, flying disc technology, was not extraterrestrial in origin, but had been had a human origin. Well, needless to say, I was extremely interested in seeing this proof because uh, proof is hard to come by, and, and the truth is elusive at best. I knew that we possessed this technology, and I had seen it fly and had filmed it, actually, out in the desert in Nevada, and had produced two video documentaries of these craft actually in flight over a test site owned and operated by secret agencies of the United States government called Area 51 in the desert in Nevada at a location on civilian maps, if you can find it on civilian maps, designated as Groom Dry Lake. Well, this man uh, showed up. I was to meet him at a specific restaurant in town, which I did. He came in. He did not want to talk there, however, so we drove around. And, uh, in fact, we drove to another little town not too far away where he rented a motel room. We went in this motel room, he brought in a briefcase, and he set the briefcase on the table, and without saying anything, he merely opened the briefcase, the top of the briefcase, and there was a round silver disc in this briefcase that rose up on its own power out of the briefcase and hovered about four feet above the top of the table. Now, that was my first uh, experience up close with this kind of technology. He then proceeded to tell me that he had been a part, this was an old elderly gentleman, had been a part of a secret program that was begun in the 50s to develop this flying disc technology. He said it had been developed, was operational, and he was a part of the scientific development team. He never did tell me his name. He wouldn't. He was afraid for his safety. But he wanted me to see this demonstration that the technology was real, and that it would work. I wrote an article about it, which was in Sedona uh, Emergence magazine. Uh, if any of you want to go look for that and pursue that, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing that, that happened to me personally, and the impact of seeing this has stayed with me for quite some time. Now, after that, I was approached in Denver, Colorado, by two gentlemen who told me that they had actually perfected these, this technology on their own without any help from anyone and had built a six-foot diameter flying disc and wanted me to witness a test flight of this uh, craft, which I did. Uh, it was not a ducted fan, did not have a jet inside of it or a propeller. It was all electromagnetic, um, and it was absolutely amazing. I witnessed this thing fly. I witnessed it do things in the air that supposedly cannot be done by by uh, uh, any kind of aircraft that we know. And it did some other things I'm not even going to talk about, and I can't tell you who built this thing, but they did. And so I want you to listen closely to what I'm going to give to you now and uh, go out and try it, folks. You may be absolutely amazed, surprised, and thrilled when you find out that you, too, can build a flying saucer. You see, at the end of the 19th century, the most distinguished scientists and engineers declared that no known combination of materials and locomotion could be assembled into a practical flying machine. 
Fifty years later, another generation of distinguished scientists and engineers declared that it was technologically unfeasible for a rocket ship to reach the moon. Nevertheless, folks, men were getting off the ground and out into space even while these words were uttered. In the last half of the 20th century, when technology is advancing faster than reports can reach the public, it is fashionable to hold the pronouncements of yesterday's experts to ridicule. But there's something anomalous about the consistency with which eminent authorities fail to recognize technological advances even while they are being made. You must bear in mind that these men are not given to making public pronouncements in haste. Their conclusions are reached after exhaustive calculations and proofs, and they are better informed about their subject than anyone else alive. But by and large, revolutionary advances in technology do not contribute to the advancement of established experts, so they tend to believe that the challenge cannot possibly be recognized. The UFO phenomenon is a perversity in the annals of revolutionary engineering. On the one hand, public authorities deny the existence of flying saucers and prove their existence to be impossible. This is just as we should expect from established experts. But on the other hand, people who believe that flying saucers exist have produced findings that only tend to prove that UFOs are technological, unfeasible by any known combination of materials and locomotion. Now, there is reason to suspect that the people who believe in the existence of UFOs do not want to discover the technology because it is not in the true believer's self-interest that a flying saucer be within the capability of human engineering. You see, the true believer wants to believe that UFOs are of extraterrestrial origin because he is seeking some kind of relief from debt and taxes by alliance with superhuman powers. A knight in shining armor, riding a white horse, if you will, the benevolent space brothers, someone who will rescue us from ourselves. If anyone with mechanical ability really wanted to know how a saucer flies, he would study the testimonies to learn the flight characteristics of this craft and then ask, how can we do this saucer thing? And this is probably what Werner von Braun said when he decided that it was in his self-interest to launch man into space. How can we get this bird off the ground and keep it off? Well, what is a flying saucer? It is a disc-shaped craft, about 30 feet in diameter, with a dome in the center accommodating the crew and presumably the operating machinery, and it flies. So let us begin by building a disc-shaped airfoil. Mount the cockpit and the engine under a central canopy and see if we can make it fly. As a matter of fact, folks, during World War II, the United States actually constructed a number of experimental aircraft conforming exactly to these specifications, and photographs of the craft are published from time to time in popular magazines about science and flight. It is highly likely that some of the UFO reports before 1950 were sightings of these test flights. See how easy it is? when you want to find answers to a mystery? The mythical saucer also flies at incredible speeds. Well, the speeds believed possible depend upon the time and place of the observer. As stated earlier, folks, a hundred years ago, 25 miles per hour was legally prohibited in the belief that such a terrific velocity would endanger human life. So replace the propeller of the experimental disc airfoil with a modern aerojet engine. Is Mach 3 fast enough for believers? But the true saucer, folks, not only flies, it also hovers. You mean like a hovercraft? One professional engineer translated Ezekiel's description of heavenly ships as a helicopter whom hovercraft. 
But what of the anomalous electromagnetic effects manifest in the space surrounding a flying saucer? Well, folks, Nikola Tesla demonstrated a prototype of an electronic device that was eventually developed into the electron microscope. The television screen and an aerospace engine called the ion drive. Since World War II, the engineering of the ion drive has been advanced as the most promising solution to the propulsion of interplanetary spaceships. Interplanetary spaceships developed by a man named Nikola Tesla when jets were not even a reality. Do you grasp the importance of what I'm telling you? The drive operates by charging atomic particles and directing them with electromagnetic force as a jet to the rear, generating a forward thrust in reaction. The advantage, folks, of the ion drive over chemical rockets is that a spaceship can sweep in the ions it needs from its flight path like an aerojet sucks in air through its engines. Therefore, the ship must carry only the fuel it needs to generate the power for its chargers. There's no need to carry dead weight in the form of rocket exhaust. There's another advantage to be derived from ion rocketry. The top speed of a reaction engine is limited by the ejection velocity of its exhaust. An ion jet is close to the speed of light. If space travel is ever to be practical, transport will have to achieve a large action of the speed of light. If that's the way space travel is going to work. In 1972, the French journal Science at Avenir reported Franco-American research into a method of ionizing the airstream flowing over the wings to eliminate sonic booms a serious objection to the commercial success of the Concorde. Four years later, a picture appeared in an American tabloid of a model aircraft showing the current state of development. The photograph, ladies and gentlemen, shows a disc-shaped craft, but not so thin as a saucer. It more looks more like a flying curling stone. In silent flight, the ionized air flowing around the craft glows as a proper UFO should. The last word comes from an engineering professor at the local university. He has begun construction of a flying saucer in his backyard. Now, to the true believer, the flying saucer has no jet. It seems to fly by some kind of anti-gravity. As Anti-gravity is not known to exist in physical theory or experimental fact in popular science. The saucer is clearly alien and beyond human comprehension. But folks, anti-gravity depends upon what you conceive gravity to be, now doesn't it? For all practical purposes, you do not have to understand what Newton and Einstein mean by gravity. Gravity is an acceleration downward to the center of the Earth. Therefore, anti-gravity is merely an acceleration upward to counteract that acceleration downward. As far as practical engineering is concerned, any means to achieve a gain in altitude is an anti-gravity engine. An airplane, a balloon, a rocket, a stepladder, all are anti-gravity engines of one type or another. See how easy it is to invent an anti-gravity engine? There are three basic kinds of locomotive engines. The primary principle is traction. The foot and the wheel are traction engines. The traction engines depend upon friction against a surrounding medium to generate movement, and locomotion can proceed only as far and as speedily as the surrounding friction will provide. The second principle is displacement. The balloon and the submarine rise by displacing a denser medium. 
they descend by displacing less than their weight. The tertiary drive is the rocket engine. A rocket is driven by reaction from the mass of material it ejects. Although a rocket is most efficient when not impeded by a surrounding medium, it must carry not only its fuel, but also the mass it must eject. As a consequence, folks, the rocket is impractical where powerful acceleration is required for extended drives. In chemical rocketry, 10 minutes is a long burn for powered flight. What is needed for practical anti-gravity locomotion is a fourth principle which does not depend upon a surrounding medium or ejection of mass. Now, you must take notice that none of the principles of locomotion required any new discovery. They have all been around for thousands of years, and engineering only implemented the principle with increasing efficiency. The key is efficiency. A fourth principle of locomotion has also been around for thousands of years. It is called centrifugal force. Centrifugal force is the principle of the military sling and the medieval catapult. Now everyone, or at least we think everyone, knows that centrifugal force can overcome gravity if directed upward, centrifugal force can be used to drive an anti-gravity engine. The problem engineers have been unable to solve is that centrifugal force is generated in all directions on the plane of the centrifuge. It won't provide locomotion unless the force can be concentrated in one direction. The solution of the sling, of releasing the wheeling at the instant the centrifugal force is directed along the ballistic trajectory, has all the inefficiencies of a cannon. The difficulty of the problem is not real, however, and this is the key. There's a mental block preventing people from perceiving a centrifuge as anything other than a flywheel. A bicycle wheel is a flywheel. If you remove the rim and tire, leaving only the spokes sticking out of the hub, you still have a flywheel. In fact, spokes alone make a more efficient flywheel than the complete wheel. And this is because momentum only goes up, only in proportion to mass, but with the square of speed. Spokes are made of drawn steel with extreme tensile strength, so spokes alone can generate the highest level of centrifugal force long after the rim and tire have disintegrated. But spokes alone still generate centrifugal force equally in all directions, from the plane of rotation. All you have to do to concentrate centrifugal force in one direction is remove all the spokes but one. That one spoke still functions as a flywheel, even though it is not a wheel any longer. Now you see how easy it is once you accept an attitude of solving one problem at a time as you come to it. You can even add a weight to the end of the spoke to increase the centrifugal force. But our centrifuge still generates a centrifugal force acceleration in all directions around the plane of rotation, even though it doesn't generate acceleration equally in all directions at the same time. All we've managed to do, folks, is to make the whole ball of wire wobble around the common center of mass between the axle and free end of the spoke. To solve this problem, now that we've come to it, we need merely to accelerate the spoke through a few degrees of arc and then let it complete the cycle of revolution without power. As long as it is accelerated during the same arc at each cycle, the locomotive will lurch in one direction, albeit intermittently. But don't forget that the piston engine also drives intermittently. The regular centrifugal pulses can be evened out by mounting several centrifuges on the same axle so that a pulse from another flywheel takes over as soon as one pulse of power is past its arc. The next problem facing us is that the momentum imparted at the centrifugal spoke carries it all around the cycle with little loss of velocity. The amount of concentrated centrifugal force carrying the engine in the desired direction is too low to be practical. Momentum is half the product of mass multiplied by velocity squared. 
Therefore, what we need is a spoke that has a tremendous velocity with minimal mass. They don't make spokes like that, folks, for bicycle wheels. Don't go away. We've got to take our break. I'll be right back after this very short pause. Well, just before we took our break, folks, we were talking about what we need is a spoke that has a tremendous velocity with minimal mass. And they don't make spokes like that for bicycle wheels. A search through the engineer's catalog, however, turns up just the kind of centrifuge we need. An electron has no mass at rest. You cannot find a smaller minimum mass than that. All its mass is inherent in its velocity. So, we build an electron raceway in the shape of a donut in which we can accelerate an electron to a speed close to that of light. As the speed of light is approached, the energy of acceleration is converted to a momentum approaching infinity. Now, as it happens, an electron accelerator answering our need was developed by the University of California during the last years of World War II. It is called a Betatron. And the donut is small enough to be carried comfortably in a man's hands. We can visualize the operation of the Mark I Betatron from what is known about particle accelerators. To begin with, high-energy electrons ionize the air surrounding them. This causes the Betatrons to glow like an annular neon tube. Just exactly what is described in UFO reports. Therefore, around the rim of the saucer, a ring of lights will glow like a string of shiny beads at night. The power required for flight will ionize enough of the surrounding atmosphere to short out all electrical wiring in the vicinity unless it is specially shielded. Exactly what happens in typical UFO encounters. In theory, the top speed of the Mark I is close to the speed of light. In practice, there are many more problems to be solved before relativistic speeds can be approached. The peculiar property, folks, of microwaves heating all material containing the water molecule means that any animal luckless enough to be nearby may be cooked from the inside out. Vegetation will be scorched where a saucer lands, and any rocks containing water of crystallization will be blasted. Every housewife with a microwave knows all of this. Only hard-headed scientists and soft-headed, true UFO believers are completely dumbfounded. The UFO knots would be cooked by their own engines, too, if they left the flight deck without shielding. This probably explains why a pair of UFO knots in a widely published photograph wear reflective plastic jumpsuits. Mounting the Betatron's outboard on a disc is an efficient way to get them away from the cruise compartment and the plating of the hull shields the interior. At high accelerations, increasing amounts of power are transformed into radiation, making the centrifugal drive inefficient in strong gravitational fields. The most practical employment of this engineering is for large spacecraft never intended to land. The flying saucers we see are very likely scouting craft sent from motherships moored in orbit. Regardless the origin of the technology, human or extraterrestrial, this same requirement must apply. For brief periods of operation, the heavy fuel consumption of the Mark I can be tolerated, along with radiation leakage, especially when the planet being scouted is not your own. When you compare the known operating features of particle centrifuges with the eyewitness testimony, it is fairly evident that any expert claiming flying saucers to be utterly beyond any human explanation is simply not doing his homework, and he should be re-examined for his professional license. Well, fortunately, nobody in the ufology, I mean the ufology movement, has to do that because none of them are professional, you can guarantee it or at least don't demonstrate any knowledge of professionalism, let's put it that way. And it certainly requires nothing to call yourself a ufologist, I mean a ufologist. Nothing whatsoever. Any first-rate idiot 
can pin that term to the end of his name on any correspondence and instantly become one of the elect, the true believers. Now, for dramatic purpose, I have classified the development of the flying saucer through five stages. Mark 1. Electronic centrifuges mounted around a fixed disc outboard. Mark 2. Electronic centrifuges mounted outboard around a rotating disc. Mark 3. Electronic centrifuges mounted outboard around a rotating disc, period of cycles tuned to harmonize with ley lines for jet assist. Mark 4. Particle centrifuge tuned to modify time coordinates by faster than light travel. And I myself have seen the obvious demonstration of this in the air with my own eyes over the area known as Green Dry Lake. Mark 5. No centrifuge. Solid state coils and crystal harmonics transforms ambient field directly for dematerialization and rematerialization at destinations in time and space. I don't know if that's the technology, but I have also witnessed these craft materialize and dematerialize, sometimes miles apart. And sometimes they never appear. Again, at least not while I am standing there. I have filmed this, for those of you who may doubt it. Uh, we had a, our first documentary, it was called Project Red Light, that is no longer available. Uh, because we've incorporated some of that original footage into Project Red Light 2, which has the most up-to-date and best examples of UFO flying saucer disc-shaped craft and a series of video footage of a what's called a cigar-shaped craft actually flying in daylight over the test site. That's available. Anybody that wants it, it's right for our price list of materials, and we'll be happy to send it to you. And if you want it, order it. Now, folks, that the UFO phenomenon has been somewhat demystified and reduced to human kin, we can proceed to prove the theory. If your resources are like those <laughs> uh, that we have around here, or, or that are available to almost anyone, you can go ahead and build your own flying saucer without any further information from me. But I have nothing to work with except the junk I can find around the house. I found an old electric motor that had burned out, but still I had a few turns left in it. I drilled a hole through the driving axle so that an 8-inch bar would slide freely through it. I mounted the motor on a chassis so that the bar would rotate on an eccentric cam. In this way, folks, the end of the bar was always extended in the same direction, while the other end was always pressed into the driving axle. As both ends have the same angular velocity at all times, the end extending out from the axle would always have a higher angular momentum. This is important. This resulted in a concentration of centrifugal acceleration in one direction. When I plugged in the motor, the sight of my brainchild lurching ahead unsteadily, but in a constant direction, in less than 20 seconds, the burned-out motor gasped its last and died in a puff of smoke. The test run was broadcast on radio microphone, but the spectacle was lost without television. Because the prototype did not survive long enough to run in two directions, I had to declare the test inconclusive because of mechanical breakdown. So what the hell? The Wright brothers didn't get very far off the ground the first time they tried either. Now that we know the critter will move, it is worthwhile to put a few bucks into a new motor, install a clutch, and gear the transmission down. One problem at a time is the way it goes. A rectified centrifuge small enough to hold in one hand and powered by solar cells based on this design could be manufactured for about $50, depending on production and competitive bids, installed on an orbiting space station, it would be sufficient to keep the craft in orbit indefinitely. A larger hyperspace drive, as this particular design is called, will provide a small but constant acceleration for interplanetary spacecraft that would accumulate practical velocities over runs of several days. Now, it's rumored that a gentleman by the name of Dean invented another kind of anti-gravity engine sometime during the past 50 years, 
but we've been unable to track down any more information except that its design consists of wheels within wheels. Sound familiar? A gentleman in Florida, Hans Schnabel, sent me a description of a machine he built and tested that is similar in description to the Dean Drive. Essentially, a large rotating disc has a smaller rotating disc on one side of the main driving axle. The two wheels are geared together so that a weight mounted on the rim of the smaller wheel is always at the outside of the larger wheel during the same length of arc of each revolution and always next to the main axle during the opposite arc. What happens, folks, is that the velocity of the weight is amplified by harmonic coincidence with the large rotor during one half of its period of revolution and diminished during the other half cycle. This, of course, concentrates momentum in the same quarter continually to rectify the centrifuge. The result is identical to the hyperspace drive, but has the beauty of continuously rotating motion. Now, if the Dean drive is made with a huge main motor, a rotor, I should say, like about 30 feet in diameter, there is enough room to mount a series of smaller wheels around the rim, set in gimbals for altitude control, and Mr. Dean himself has himself a Model T flying saucer requiring no license from the Atomic Energy Commission or anyone else. In 1975, Professor Eric Lathwaite, head of the Department of Electrical Engineering at the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, England, invented another approach to harnessing the centrifugal force of a gyroscope to power an anti-gravity engine. Well, let's say he almost invented it. But he did not have the sense to hold on to success when he grasped it. Professor Lathwaite is a world-renowned for his most creative solutions to the problems of magnetic levitation propulsion systems, and the fruit of his brain is operating today in Germany and in Japan. His railway trains float in the air while traveling at over 300 miles per hour. Now, if anyone can present the world with a proven anti-gravity engine, it must be this professor. Lakeweight satisfied himself that the precessional force causing a gyroscope to wobble had no reaction. This is a clear violation of Newton's third law of motion as generally conceived. Lakeweight figured that if he could engage the precessional acceleration while the gyroscope wobbled in one direction and release the procession, precession while it wobbles in another direction, he would be able to demonstrate to a forum of colleagues and critics at the college a rectified centrifuge that worked as a proper anti-gravity engine. His insight was sound, but he did not work it out right. All he succeeded in demonstrating was a separation between action and reaction, and his engine did nothing but oscillate violently. Unfortunately, neither Lakeweight or his critics were looking for a temporal separation between action and reaction, so the loophole he proved in Newton's third law was not, unfortunately, noticed. Everyone was looking for action without reaction, so no one saw anything at all. Innumerable other inventors have constructed engines essentially identical to Lakeweight's. Another invention described is U.S. Patent Disclosure Number 3,653,269. Look it up. It was granted to Richard Foster, a retired chemical engineer in Louisiana. Foster mounted his gyroscopes around the rim of a large rotor disc, like a two-cylinder flying saucer. Every time the rotor turns a half cycle, the precessional twist of the gyros in reaction generates a powerful force. During the half cycle when Foster's gyros were twisting in the other direction, his clutch grabbed and transmitted the power to the driving wheels. During the other half cycle, the gyros twisted freely. Foster claims his machine traveled four miles per hour until it flew to pieces from centrifugal forces. After examining the patents, I agreed that it looked like it would work and it certainly would fly to pieces because the bearing mounts were not nearly strong enough to contain the powerful twisting forces his machine generated. Foster's design, however, cannot be included among anti-gravitate engines because it would not operate off the ground. He never claimed it would, 
and Foster always described his invention truthfully as nothing more than an implementation of the fourth principle of locomotion. What Lathwaite needed was another rotary component like the Dean Drive, geared to his engine's oscillations so that they would always be turned to drive in the same direction. As it happens, an Italian by the name of Tonashini recently secured a patent on this very idea, and his working model is said to be attracting the interest of European engineers. When the final rectifying device is added to the essential lathe-weight design, all the moving parts generate the vectors of a vortex, and the velocity generated is the axial thrust of the vortex. Therefore, I call inventions based on this design the vortex drive. By replacing the hyperspace modules of a Mark I flying saucer with vortex modules, still retaining the essential Betatron as the centrifuge, performance is improved for the Mark II. To begin with, drive is generated only when the main rotor is revolving so the saucer can be parked with the motor running. This eliminates the agonizing doubt we all suffered when the lunar landers were about to blast off to rejoin the command capsule. Will the engines start, we all ask ourselves? This would explain why the ring of lights around the rim of a saucer is said to begin to revolve immediately prior to liftoff. A precessional drive affords a wider range of control, and the responses are more stable than a direct centrifuge. But folks, the most interesting improvement is the result of the structure of the electromagnetic field generated by the vortex drive. By amplifying and diminishing certain vectors harmonically, the Mark III flying saucer can ride the electromagnetic current of the Earth's electromagnetic field like the jet stream. And thus is just what we see UFOs doing, don't we? As they are reported running their regular flight quarters during the biennial tourist season in some locations. Professor Lathwaite got all this together when he conceived of his anti-gravity engine as a practical application of his theory of rivers of energy running through space. He just could not get it off the drawing board the first time. The flying saucer, folks, consumes fuel at a rate that cannot be supplied by all the wells in Arabia. Therefore, we have to assume that UFO engineers must have developed a practical atomic fusion reactor. But once the Mark III is perfected, another fuel supply becomes attainable, and no other is so practical for flying saucers. The Moray valve converts the Mark III into a Mark IV flying saucer by extending its operational capabilities through time as well as space. The Moray valve, you see, functions by changing the direction of flow of energy in the sun's gravitational field. It is the velocity of energy that determines motion and motion determines the flow of time. We shall continue the engineering of flying saucers in future essays. But the investigation into anti-gravity engineering brought us a technical report while this typescript was in preparation. Dr. Mason Rose, president of the University for Social Research, published a paper describing the discoveries of Dr. Paul Alfred Byfield. Some of you may have heard of the Byfield effect. Dr. Byfield, astronomer and physicist at the California Institute for Advanced Studies, and his assistant, T. Townsend Brown, in 1923, Byfield discovered that a heavily charged electrical condenser moved toward its positive pole when suspended in a gravitational field. He assigned Brown to study the effect as a research project. A series of experiments showed Brown that the most efficient shape for a field-propelled condenser was a disk with a central dome. In 1926, Townsend published his paper describing all the construction features and flight characteristics of a flying saucer conforming to the testimony of the first flight witness over Mount Rainier 21 years later and corroborated by thousands of witnesses since. And this was in 1926. The Byfield-Brown effect explains why a Mark III rides the electromagnetic jet stream much as a surfboard rides the waves. 
We may speculate that flying saucers spotted from time to time may not only include visitors from other planets and travelers through time, but also fledglings from an unknown number of cuckoo's nests in secret experimental plants all over the world. The space program at Cape Canaveral may be nothing more than a super-colossal theater orchestrated by Cecil B. DeMille to reassure Americans that they are still numero uno after Russia beat our atomic ace by putting Sputnik into orbit. We need not doubt that the Apollo spaceships got to the moon, but we may wonder if Neil Armstrong was the first man to land there. There is some evidence that indicates, folks, we may never have gone to the moon at all. What you saw on television may have been broadcast from a huge soundstage in the midst of the Nevada desert. But that's just speculation. For none of us ordinary folks can ever go to the moon to find out, for sure, can we? And that's why it's so dangerous to believe those who would tell us what is happening. Who can we trust to tell us the truth? The real space program may have been conducted in secret as a spin-off from the Manhattan Project since the end of World War II, and Apollo 13 may have been picked up by a sag wagon to make sure our team scored a home run every time they went to bat. The exploration of space is the most dangerous enterprise ever taken on by a living species. Don't you folks ever wonder why the Russians... For losing men in space like a safari being decimated in headhunter country, while nothing ever happens to our boys except accidents during ground training? Think about it. The meat of tonight's show, folks, was taken of an essay, How to Build a Flying Saucer After So Many Amateurs Have Failed, written by T.B. Palicki. If you would like to have your own copy of this essay, send a $5 donation. That's Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Right on radio. Right on radio.